around me, he was just always thinking about how to be kind and how to do things for others. And I said this about Wink when he died, and I, I believe it to be true, that if he'd have met you, he would have liked you. Hi, I'm Catherine. I love hearing people's stories. I always have. In 2021, an idea came to me to talk to 10 people I didn't know about a meaningful day in their life. I posted the idea to my neighborhood's Facebook page and connected with 11 people who were willing to share. We met in one of our homes, and these are those conversations. For me, when I hear someone's personal experience, I understand them better. I feel connected to them through common ground or a common feeling, and I always and inevitably learn something from them that helps me in my own life. I don't know what you'll find in these conversations, but I hope it's something good. I'm so grateful all around to everyone who participated, and now to you for listening. I truly hope you enjoy. Let's jump right in. Today's conversation is with Lou. My name is Lou, and I want to talk to you about a day that something wonderful happened that I can't explain. Thank you. <laughs> My husband was diagnosed in 2006, maybe, with uh, Alzheimer's. And I knew it was coming. He was genetically predisposed to it. And so I had been watching quite carefully. And he, I made him get on meds. He was not really wild about that. But we had a set to in the, in the doctor's office. And I won. And he, he got on meds. And he lived for nine and a half years with Alzheimer's. With the exception of the last month to eight, I mean, last year to 18 months, he was pretty okay. Mm -hmm. I was the second wife. So there were adult children, and it was it was convoluted and uncomfortable sometimes. So, well, it was after we took a vacation, actually, to Chicago in late July, early August, I guess, with some friends from England. And so he was he was not fine. He had several episodes there, but that was really the beginning when I knew things were going quickly downhill. And so we came back, and I had needed to go out with a girlfriend of mine for something. And so my stepdaughters came over, and were watching their father. And when I got home, they were like, this is bad. We need to, we need to see a doctor. And I was like, yeah, I know. I just haven't wanted to do that. So his oldest daughter, who's, I think, seven years younger than I, and I met with our family doctor the next day. And we had a conversation and said, okay, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. He never really got violent, but it was inching there. And he, it was becoming hurtful because as anyone that has gone through Alzheimer's knows, that they, they lose themselves. And they say and do things that are not them. So he was beginning to talk about money in a weird way. Like I said, I'm a second wife, and I married well, and it was always understood that I would get half of his estate and his children would get half of his estate, with the exception of our homes, which he always signed over to me completely. So at any rate, he, he would wake me up in the middle of the night and say, you're trying to steal things from my children. And he had the one daughter that was very... Uh, 
basically mentally ill, and I'm sure she called him and egged him on. And anyway, it was getting quite difficult. And he, at one time, he said, I want a divorce, and I'm taking this house back from you, and, you know, just things that were not, not my husband at all. And so I, I knew that we had to do something. So we went to see Tommy, our family doctor that we'd seen since, you know, for like 25 years. And Tommy said, I don't know how you've kept him this long, and it's time to do something. And I said, okay, so how do we do that? And in our healthcare system, you have to do it through the emergency system. You have to, there has to be an incident at home, and then you go to the emergency room, and then they start looking for a place. You can't just decide to put somebody in a home. They have, there has to be a reason. So my stepdaughter and I agreed that that's what was going to happen, and she was, the kids were very on board with this. And so I went home, and I got in the door, and he was hallucinating, thinking people were trying to kill us, and he kept yelling at me that I was crazy, and and he was he was leaving. And a couple of years before, we had moved into a gated community, and the guard knew that he could not get out, that he was to stay, and it was just a big loop. And so I knew that he would be fine, but I had to put my stuff down and go to the bathroom and take care of the dog and do all that kind of stuff, and then I went out looking for him. And he was very angry and very upset. And I made the mistake when I called for an ambulance of saying that I was afraid. And what I meant was I was afraid he was gonna hurt himself or I didn't know what was gonna happen. But in Memphis, Tennessee, if you tell someone you're afraid, they're sending cops. So they would not come until there was a police car free to come with the ambulance. And on a Thursday afternoon in Memphis, Tennessee at four o'clock, that is not gonna happen anytime soon. So we walked around the property a lot and him ranting and raving and this was where a lot of older people lived and, and everyone knew Wink and knew that he was ill and so people would drop by and say, are you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And so this one gentleman came up and Wink was upset and, and he kept saying, don't hurt my, don't, don't, don't hurt my dog. And Robert said, I'm not going to hurt your dog. I, I just want to make sure that you're all right. And he went, oh, Robert, it's so good to see you. Just out of, just changed, just like that. Very polite, that's, that's his normal self. And so Robert left and we did this for, I don't even, it seemed like hours. I don't know how long it was. It was probably at least two or three hours. And then finally he just fell over in exhaustion. And so then I called the ambulance and said, okay, he's on the ground. And they, or I called, 911 and they got in touch with the ambulance and so they sent the people over. And so we, they take him to the ER and I follow in the car of course. So when I got there I called my sister and so my sister and her husband were there and I was there and none of the kids could get there. And so Wink was just, he was bad at the condo complex and then he started calming down. And I'm sure it was because they probably put it on, on IV fluids. and. When people have Alzheimer's, they don't drink enough, and that adds, that's called dry brain, and they get even worse with dry brain, and they don't want to drink, and it's just a constant, you have to keep them drinking. So he began calming down quite a bit, and so when he was checked in, the doctor and I had a conversation, and I said, we need to start the process of finding a home for him because I can't do this anymore. And he said, okay, we can do that. Fine, we'll get him settled down and calmed down and all that kind of stuff. So this doctor came in 
that same doctor probably a couple hours later. And my sister and her husband were just getting ready to go home. And he looked at me and he said, are you still good with the plan? And I said, yes, that's, that's what we need to do. And he turned around and left and Wink looked at me just clear as a bell and said, what's the plan? And I said, I'll tell you in just a minute. Let's let Jane and Harvey leave. And he said, okay. So I sat there and I started talking to him and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm sorry. And he looked me right straight in the face and said, well, what the hell took you so long? And he said, I know, it's fine. I love you and you love me. I got him, they brought him a sandwich and we had about 45 minutes of absolutely lucid conversation. And that's really when I said goodbye to him. So they finally got him a room and he was fine. And we go upstairs and they're checking him in and his, he's his normal charming self with the nurses. He loved women. And so the nurse took one look at me and gave me a blanket and a sheet and said, bed, go, you know. And so I made up my bed and, and laid down. And he, I heard him wake up one time and saying, Alice, Alice. And I regret not answering him, but I was exhausted. And I just stayed quiet because I knew he would go right back to sleep. He was medicated. So I don't know how much, how long it was after that, but I woke up and there were eight nurses on top of him, holding him down. And he was having a hallucination or I don't know what was going on, but anyway, he was, he was quite violent and they had to put him in restraints. Mm -hmm. And that night was the last conversation I ever had with him that was remotely okay. The day he died, he did look at me and winked at me the morning that, that I got the phone call that I needed to come in. And his son was there. And he looked at me and he said, that was, that was intentional. He knew what he was doing. And that was his goodbye. I'm so sorry. Thank you. But it was such a gift. Wow. Well, if you're open, I'd love to hear kind of the story of your marriage, how you met, sure. how you fell in love and got married. Okay. Wink and I had an affair for 10 years before we married. He was in a very different type of marriage. I don't know that he had ever been faithful to her. And that was one of the things that we talked about, that once we were married, you know, we just really loved each other. And I don't think he ever really loved Sandra. And they had these kids, and she was a very different kind of woman. And when he said to her, I want a divorce, she said, that's fine, I don't care. I just want, don't want to be poor. And he said, I can make sure you're not poor. But the way we met was I was purchasing agent at a company, and he was the owner of this family company and he he called on me and so we got to be friends and and then actually I propositioned him and asked him if he wanted to have an affair because I it was obvious he was totally unhappy and so that we did that for 10 years had you been married before or mm -hmm. I have I, I married at 18 mm -hmm. had my daughter at 19 I was 15 years younger than Wink I should have said, said that 
see, we were single, Shelby and I, her dad, I asked her dad to leave at 18 months and we married when she was 15. So all that time I was single, mm -hmm. a single mom. And uh, she's a professor with a PhD, so I guess I did a pretty good job. When you first met him, what did you think about him? That's easy. He was the only man in my life that I can ever remember being really nice to me and concerned about me. And he was just, he was different. He was very, I'd never been around a man like him. First of all, I'd never been around somebody uh, for money. I'd never been around that part of Memphis society. And he just was, he was just so good to me and so sweet to me. And like I said, we, we had this affair for a long time. And there was a lot that went on in there that that's not important. But when we finally, you know, he, he pretty much had a nervous breakdown and said, you know, I can't do this anymore. I have to get out of this marriage. I just can't be without you. And because I tried to, I tried to stop it several times because it just wasn't, I didn't see a, an upside for me. But it, it just, we just couldn't. It just was not going to stop. So he said, it's going to kill my parents. And I said, well, I don't think so, but you've got to tell them. It's, it's time that you tell them that, you know, that you're getting a divorce. And so he, basically when he told them, his mother's comment to him back was, oh, thank God, we thought you'd never get rid of her. So they had disliked this woman their entire marriage hmm. and had never, if they had shared that to, with Wink before, he might have, he was all, all about not hurting his parents and, you know, being the good son and, and doing what they, they wanted for a son. So he did that. It took, us, it took him three years to get a divorce because she get, every time he'd make a proposal, she would just say no. You know, she wouldn't give another number. She would just say, no, that won't do. And so finally they came to terms and basically she got everything except the company and we kept the company, and so we started all over. Wow, I really appreciate your willingness to talk about this. Was I have, I've given up secrets in my life, and my, I think I embarrass my, my daughter sometimes because I, I think, and, and the first thing I'll tell you is that when someone mentions to me about, you know, that they're seeing someone and that, you know, it worked out for you, and I'm like, okay, first of all, you have to understand that doesn't happen. That, my story is, really different. Most of the time when someone, you meet somebody in an extramarital affair, it ends badly for both parties and it ruins two marriages or one marriage or whatever. My story is very rare and I always make sure that people know that. Mm -hmm. But we just had a very, very special relationship. You said you were the, the one who kind of mm -hmm. made the suggestion or the first move to him. Mm -hmm. What was that process like for you? What did that feel like for you? Or I just did you wrestle with it for a while, or was it kind of well, like just an in the moment thing? It was sort of in the moment, but you have to understand that I grew up. My mother was an alcoholic, and there were always men in and out of my life. Mm -hmm. And she was married five times. And I have to tell you that until I married Wink, I didn't really understand what marriage was, because I'm like real sure. Well, I know for sure that my mother had affairs because my sister is not biologically the product of who she was married to at the time. So I, you know, I, I know, I, and I've known that my whole life. There's always, I did not understand what marriage meant. 
I didn't understand the commitment. I didn't understand that it was any violation. And I, I'm not making excuses for myself. I should have known better. And I was, the other part of this is I was a, a, a very devout Christian at the time and went to church and, and was a pillar in the church. So it was, but I just didn't understand marriage. Is what I can, that's the way I've come to grips with it. Because I know now, like just recently, I had a little fling with this guy. And, you know, he he was quite a bit younger than me. And I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere, but it was fun. And then he ends up telling me that he lied to me and that he was married. And I was so pissed because I said, I am not that person anymore. I would not have done that now, now that I know what marriage means. And it really pissed me off because he took advantage of me. So, I just didn't understand marriage at all. So you knew him as this kind of really caring person who was perhaps really unhappy, and you guys had we just good... we had we just had a real good rapport. Mm-hmm. And the way it happened, I remember it distinctly. I was sitting at my desk, and I called him up, and I was placing an order with him, and I said, "I need you know six links of screw conveyor or whatever, and I need this, this, and this." And would you like to have an affair? What did he say? He said, uh, he kind of stammered and he said, I don't really know what he said, but something to the effect of, I'll get back to you on that. And we did. So. Wow. Did he call you up or did he show up? Do you remember? I, I feel like we made plans to meet later. Okay. And I do remember that. I remember that night. And then you guys saw each other for quite some time. Ten years. And then I found out, I wasn't going to bring this in, but I I will, just to show the the difference. I found out several years into our relationship that the same time he was having a relationship with me, he was having a relationship and his wife. He was a trouser snake. And so that's when I blew up and said, I'm done. Cannot do this anymore. I thought I was your beginning and end, blah, blah, blah. And he said... Yeah, I, I think what it was is it had been going on with her so long he didn't know, you know, he was like, I don't know what to do, she works for me, and blah, blah, blah. And she probably felt the same way about him that I did, that, you know, he was a nice man and really good and bad and just, you know, all these neat things. And so when he, when I said I'm not going to do this anymore is when he had his nervous breakdown and just, I mean, he lost it, totally and completely lost it, had to see a counselor and basically came to terms with, I've got to, I, I have to, I have to have a I want one. And so we, you know, came to terms on, okay, we'll do this, but we're, it's just me and you. There is no other, and I, and I feel extremely confident that there was never anyone but me from that point forward. Wow. So he initiated his divorce? Yes. And then that, that took a while? Three years, yeah. And then... When he was divorced, what happened? We got married. Like right away? Or? Right immediately. Well, I mean, I think his divorce was final in like in the early summer and we were married in October because then we had to plan a wedding. Wow. How did he propose? Or did you propose? I don't think there was ever a proposal. Oh, well, the closest I think we got to a proposal was we were sitting in church, obviously, because we went to church all the time. And the church was being built. We were building a new sanctuary. And... That he was, they were talking about, how did they say it? They said something about, and the sanctuary will be finished in a year or something like that. And he whispered in my ear and said, I can't wait a year to be your husband. And so we planned 
a wedding someplace else at my sister's farm. Wow. And we had been at the farm. That's kind of an integral part. My sister and her husband owned property on the Tennessee River, like by Clifton, and you probably don't know where that is, but Savannah, Clifton area. And they had a mile and a half of riverfront on the Tennessee River, and they had exotic animals. They had zebras and antelopes and buffalo and longhorn cattle. And so we had a, this beautiful outdoor wedding at sunset on the Tennessee River, and their son went down right in the middle of the river. It was, Wait, I'm sorry, did you say zebras? Yeah. <laughs> Zebras, yeah. <laughs> well, I have some questions. Oh, I'm sure you do. Okay, so when did you tell your family about him? Probably right after. I think they kind of knew, but my daughter didn't know. I mean, I think they knew somebody was in my life, but I just didn't discuss it. And they probably knew it was Wink because I was around him a lot. But then once he moved out, then we started seeing each other with my family around. Mm -hmm. So, and then my daughter just adored him and they were very close to each other. He, matter of fact, her father was basically useless. And so he walked her down the aisle and her father was very upset and said, well, you know, if, if I'm not walking her down the aisle, People are just going to think I'm a terrible person and I don't have any reason to come. And I was like, okay. But, um, he and he didn't. <laughs> Neither him or any of her siblings came to her wedding. And she told her, she told her biological father, Wink was there always for me. You know, he was the one that was at the hospital with me when I had my surgeries. He was at all my college graduations. She had a lot of them, and she, and she, you know, he was always there, and you haven't been, so he's walking me down the aisle. Wow. You said what you know about marriage now is so much different from mm -hmm. what you knew then. What, what changed for you after you got married, and what did you learn about marriage? Well, I understood what it, I never, I thought I was in love with Shelby's daddy. And what it amounted to was he was the best looking man I'd ever seen in my entire life and I was 18 years old. And it was just a very hot, fast physical relationship. And he, he was an interesting, he joined the Marine Corps. And like, we had not seen each, I'd had a crush on him since fifth grade and then his family moved off and they moved back. And I just happened to answer the phone one night or one afternoon at my house, this, his father was calling to talk to my mother about the business. And so I, because they had worked together, and so I said, well, I understand Fred Jr.'s back. If he wants to see anything, let me know. I'll be glad to show him Memphis now. So we went out like on a Friday night, and then like the next Tuesday he asked me to marry him. Just wow. that quick, yeah. And so we got married. Wow. And part of that was that I had a, stepfather that was pretty abusive and a mother that was an alcoholic and um, he never laid a hand on me because my sister made it clear that that would not be a good idea but he did hit my mom and and there was a lot of alcohol in the home and so I just wanted out you know mm -hmm. I I don't now at he was 64 years old don't understand why I didn't think well you're going to college next year you know but I was just head over heels in lust, not love, with Fred. 
and I'll always care for Fred. We have a, sh a child together, and he was my first love. But when I, with Wink, it was just different. I mean, it was totally and completely all-consuming for both of us. And the, my, my thing about marriage changed, I think, because I understood, I almost think that the affair, that, or him seeing while he was seeing me and how much that hurt me, made me understand marriage vows and how hurtful that can be. Because it never occurred to me that anybody got hurt in any of that. I'd seen, you know, my mom and, and all this stuff that happened and it, I never saw the, I never saw that part of it. Mm -hmm. And so once I, once it happened to me, I realized. And of course he was like any man, he didn't want to think about me being with anyone but him. So, you know, that's, it's typical. And um, so I, th I think that's mainly what changed. Plus, I was very, I'd become quite devout religious-wise, where I was, I was raised in the church, but I was not, my family, you know, like I said, alcohol and all kinds of stuff in my family. So it wasn't, we weren't what you would call devout church members. But, you know, I think living, being around people that, that were, and I made sure that Shelby was in church and that we had a, a, you know, she had a strong moral backing. And that's what I think did it for me. The combination of knowing what being hurt was like and knowing what a marriage really should be. And then living what at the time I thought was a very productive Christian life. So did the people in your church family know the, of your relationship? Or? My minister did. Okay. Yeah, I've never been very good at not telling the truth. And my church was very accepting on sin. I mean, we have everybody sins and everybody has a different sin. And, and the funny thing is if I was ever going to be devout again or, or believe in God again, I'd probably go right back to that same church because it, it made more sense to me than others. Okay. Well, here's a question that might be a little bit strange, but why did you get married? To wink? Yeah. Or the first, or the second? No, to wink. wink. Like, you guys, he was divorced. You could be together. So what was it about actually getting married? Like, what did that mean to you, or why was that important? Well, this sounds really cold-blooded, but basically for financial security. Mm -hmm. Because I got married at 18, and I had very, I mean, I made pretty good money for a woman with no education, but I had a child to raise, and, you know, there was, and, and, and also, he was 15 years older than I was. He was not going to not get married. You know, that's just what you did. And so, and, and we wanted to be together. And I guess that for people our age, I, I know younger people don't see marriage as, as the commitment, that it's, it's more of a, uh, they want to be partners. And I get that. But if, especially, well, of course, we weren't going to have children because we'd both been, spayed and neutered, but I think just because that's what you do when you care about someone and for the financial security. So. Yeah. So you get married and then, this is a very open question, but what happens? Did you, were you living together beforehand or? Yeah, he moved in. Well, he had an apartment, right? He got an apartment right after he moved out. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that he spent more than 10 nights there the whole time he had it. And then finally he just got rid of it and, you know, but he stayed with us a lot. And... How long were you married? 
before um, he died on September the 7th October the 5th it would have been 25 years so if you take the 25 and add the 10 to it we were together 35 years Wow so you guys were you, you still work together or did no. you work for his company after no never I was I had a couple of I was purchasing agent at Cargill his biggest client and then when we realized that we wanted to get together and it was possibly going to happen at some point in time, a job offer came along for me. It's one of the people that called on me selling a pipe valves and fittings company, hired me away. And so I went to work selling pipe valves and fittings. And so I was no longer, there was no, any, no longer any conflict of interest between his biggest client and me. So, because you know, it would have looked kind of bad if married the purchasing agent. So, but anyway. Uh, so I went and sold pipe valves and fittings, and I did that for quite some time. And then I, I got my real estate license, and I did that for several years, and got really had a, a really good following, and was doing very well. And then I got sick. I have a upper respiratory thing that occasionally happens, and I got really really sick for about three months. And I was at that point where I was either going to have to get a partner or an assistant or something, or quit, and then I got sick. And so if you're not doing it every day in real estate, your business falls off. So I kind of lost some clients, and we were out at um, breakfast one morning at, I think it was Father's Day, and we were at, we were not country club members because that's just not my thing. And so we were at the country club with his parents, and my beeper kept going off, and so Wink finally grabbed my beeper and went and called the person and said, first of all, it's 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning and we're not in church, but we could have been. And you just she will call you when she gets out. And so he was furious. And uh, so on the way home, he said, you know, we really don't need the money that bad because at the time there'd been, this is awful, but in a family like Winks, when people die, it behooves you. He had inherited some stuff, and so the, the financial crunch was off. And uh, he said, we really don't need the money that bad. I think you should quit work. And I, I now wish I hadn't because it changes the dynamics in a marriage. Mm -hmm. You're no longer equal partners. Somebody has, they think, more right to make financial decisions, and I guess that's true. So, I mean, it, was, it, 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 it uh, man, manifested itself in things like... Uh, furniture choices, and, you know, it wasn't, I mean, he, he never denied me anything, but it was just like, he always got his way, mm -hmm. you know, so. But he always wanted me to travel. I traveled a lot, and he didn't, because he was afraid of flying. He finally started flying later in our marriage. But I, I've led a life that I would never have had privy to if it had not been from our situation with Wink. Wow. My marriage to Wink. What did you love about being married to him? The fact that he absolutely adored me. And what, what I'm, I know this, this is terribly narcissistic, and I, you know, I'm sure I'll have to pay for this someday, but what I miss the most about being married to Wink is that he told me every day of our marriage that I was the most beautiful woman on earth. And he loved me. And I miss that, I miss that adoration. So... That's, that was part of it. And the fact he never wanted me to do without. And like, for instance, the 
the way I knew that something was going on with him is we were in France on a, a trip. And it was the first time he had been to France. I think I, I had been before, but it was the first time he had been to France. And so we had, you know, all of our, like, carry-on luggage and all this stuff. And first of all, to get him on an airplane, he had to be, he had to have a tranquilizer to get on, and then I had to get him drunk to keep him on it. So it was like, you know, he'd take a tranquilizer, and I'd get him a rum and a Coke, and then he would sleep eight hours and then wake up wherever. So he was still probably a little high when he came to, but he was walking through the airport, and I was, like, carrying everything. And I was like, this is not wink. You know, this, because he usually wouldn't even let me carry my own bag if it was a big purse. You know, he was like, no, that's too, you know, I want, I want to take care of you. But we got through that trip and I went back, I got, I had him tested and um, sure enough, he had very early stage cognitive decline. But all my friends said, Lou, he was just being a man. I was like, no, you don't understand. That is not my husband. That is not Wayne Cooper. I know, I know him and he doesn't ever leave me in the lurch. Wow, what what was it like when you got that diagnosis? I know you said it was he was kind of predisposed to it, yeah. Um, but and you had been looking, but still to get that actual news. Do you remember what that day was like? It was it was obviously devastating. I think more so for him than for me, because when you marry a man that's fifteen years older than yourself, you expect to be a caretaker at some point. And his father had, of course, you never. You never let anybody see the worst of it. But his father's disease did not get to the point that Winks did. Though only because he they put him into a very nice Alzheimer's care unit and then he fell and hit his head and ended up getting pneumonia in the hospital. So he went his was a much more gentle death than Winks was. Winks was pretty brutal. But so I'm not gonna say I felt like it was the end of the earth. It just was. It just was what it was. That's a, that was one of his favorite things. It is what it is, and so we just and, and we we handled it probably differently than most people. Like we talked about it all the time. We talked. We knew that I was going to be by myself, and we knew, you know, like quintessential Wink story. We were. This was about a year before he died, maybe, and we were. Uh, the mattress was giving me fits with my back, and so I said, "Honey, I've got to have a new mattress. Let's go buy a new mattress." And he said, "Okay." So we got in the car, and and obviously I could have done all this without him. I could have just done it, but I like to keep him, you know, in the loop. So we went to the mattress store, and so I'm looking at mattresses, and he's just kind of walking around looking. And I said, honey, come over here and lay down with me and tell me if you like this mattress. And he, he's, he looked at me, and the salesman was standing there all eager, you know, and he said, I've got a terminal illness. What the hell do I care which mattress you buy? And the, and the salesman, you know, you could tell that it just really flummoxed him. And I went, it's okay. We talk about this all the time. And, you know, that was just, we just knew. You know, it was just, so I think we handled it as healthily as possible. Sounds like it was really out in the open. It was very out in the open, yes. Was it hard for him to process at the beginning? You said it wasn't hard. I mean, of course it was hard, but like... I don't think it was as hard at the first as it was at the end because he wanted to continue working and he had employees that adored him and kept saying, Luke, let him keep coming to work. Let him keep coming to work. It's what's keeping him alive. And I said, I understand that. And so we, we kept him there as long as we could. And like his daughter, we had to take you know, he couldn't drive anymore, and 
I did chicken out on that and had the partners, his partners take the car away from him because I was like, I'm not making that call. So they took his keys away from him. So his daughter took him in the morning because I'm not a morning person. And then I would pick him up in the afternoon. And we did that for a little over a year. And then someone came in and bought the company. And so the two, the other two partners agreed to stay on for a year. And I refused. I said, he is not going to do that. So they got really mad at me because he was such a good liar, <laughs> such a salesman, that I don't think his partners ever really knew how sick he was, which my stepdaughter, the oldest one, said, you know, they just had their head up their ass. And I was like, I get it. But they really didn't understand how sick he was. And one of them even said that to me at the funeral. We had no idea how sick he was. And I said, well, I don't know why. I told you all the time. But I said, he is, Mr. Hoover is not working a day past the closing date of the sale. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was so adamant is because I knew that he was getting to a point where I didn't want him to, you know, soil himself or embarrass himself in front of his employees. So I was like, and, I, and, I, and he had one employee and I was like, Cliff, if something happens, you have to take care of him. And he said, don't worry, I will, I will see to it that he, it, it's treated appropriately. But I, I said, no, he's not going back to work. Wow. So. So you got the diagnosis and life continued and he, the illness obviously progressed, but he was able to keep working. So how long was it from when he stopped working forward? Well, until, oh, just a until matter he, until well, he needed, until you had to call the ambulance. That was, that was just about a year. Okay. A little over a year, but what happened was when he got the diagnosis, we lived in this huge house on nearly a full acre. The yard looked like mine now, except a full acre of it, all irrigated, looked like a park. It was gorgeous. It was out in the county, and I, I, I had been a realtor. I wasn't a realtor then, but I knew the market that it was going to turn. That was in 2007, and we all know what happened in 2008. But in the meantime, we moved into a condo, that gated community I told you about, mm -hmm. because I knew that I couldn't keep the big house with all that was entailed in maintaining that house and him, so we moved into the condo. What prompted your move to Nashville? He was sick at that point. His death. I mean, well, we had decided I didn't want to buy another piece of property in Memphis because it just wasn't as good of an investment, and I wanted to be with my daughter and my grandkids as opposed to in Memphis. Because my daughter lives here with my two grandchildren and her husband. So we, I just told Mike, I want to I want to move to Nashville. And he was like, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, I saw my grandmother experience dementia or progress through Alzheimer's. And, you know, that's a heartbreaking disease. Yes. It really is. You know, there are some milestones that I think People mm -hmm. who haven't experienced it consider, mm -hmm. or people who have kind of know. Mm -hmm. Was there, was there the moment where he didn't recognize you? <laughs> yes, and it was, and it didn't happen often. If he had plenty of water, he knew who I was, and I don't think he ever really didn't not know me if he was fully himself. But there was the night we were headed to Chicago. He just basically thought I was a hooker. And because he found me in his bed and I've always slept naked. And so he was like, hmm, okay. And he was like, and how long have we known each other? And that wasn't the night we left. It was like the day before. And so I said, well, we've known each other for years. Let's go for a drive. And so I was trying to show him things to see if I could 
And he was like, well, if what's true, if, if what you're telling me is true, then I think we ought to go back to the house and try and get it on. And I'm like, okay. And thinking, he had been impotent for years. And so I was like, okay, well, we'll just, um, we'll think about that, you know, and said, let's go home. And he, um, he, he came back and then he knew who I was. And then in, it happened in Chicago again that he, it really wasn't hurtful. It was more funny than it was hurtful, but that was a, a real opener that, you know, sometimes he does not know who I am. Yeah. But that's a, I think that's a standard thing that men do a lot when they, because you have to understand that Alzheimer's patients, they're only concerned about their own needs and their own, their own self. And, and you know, their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And they just want to make sure that they have everything they need and they want. And that they feel safe and careful. And with men, it sometimes it's quite sexual. Uh, how long was he in the care facility? Oh, a matter of days. Oh, less than two weeks. Probably. So from the time that you he called went to the, the hospital, yeah, he went to the hospital and was probably in the hospital ten or twelve days mm -hmm. because he was a mess. I mean, he really was a mess, and he had. We think that he had basically just a brainstorm of strokes, and and then they also told me when he died that they think that he had had Parkinson's along with the Alzheimer's, which he had never had a Parkinson's diagnosis, but Parkinson's has a lot of hallucinations in it, and Alzheimer's doesn't always. So hmm. they, I think on his death certificate, I think it says vascular dementia, which basically means your head is blown. You know, you're, you've had so many strokes that there's nothing there. It's not, it's not connecting anymore. Wow. And so he would have moments like I said when he winked at me the day he died but we had our, we had caught that was his first day of hospice actually and we had called hospice in and they came in and after he winked at me and everything then they gave him a shot that made things easier and I pretty much stayed in bed with him the whole day I, I crawled in bed with him and with his sister was there my sister was there my her husband was there one of his daughters came by and couldn't stay the oldest one they they're not that kind of, they just can't handle emotions. And then his son was there and he, he stayed there and he was an undertaker. So we kept thinking Wink was gone and his heart was probably in better shape than mine is today, he was 74. So way after everything else was gone, his, his heart kept beating and it took a really long time for him to be pronounced because he just it would beat like once a minute. I mean, it would just took, it took probably 15, 20 minutes for us ever to really say, he's gone because his heart just kept beating wow. and you were there with him the whole time in bed with him most of it I was right there by his side I had my hand on his chest was right there by his side the whole time I may have gone to the bathroom once but. did you say anything to him or say any prayers yeah, with we, him or that well we didn't pray but we did I talked to him quite a bit and you know whispered in his ear and told him it was fine and it's time for him to go, and that I'm fine, and the kids are fine, and you know, yeah, yeah, we talked a lot. I don't remember particularly any of the words, other than I know I consoled him and told him it was fine. I think I did that with mother. I think you're supposed to do that with everybody, you know, release them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Thank you so much for sharing this. <laughs> you're welcome. After he passed that evening, you, you left the the facility. Yeah, yeah it was what? like 
but on 1 2 o'clock and it was really funny the minute he passed i had no desire to say anymore i knew he was gone it was just he was gone there was no more there was no feeling of him anymore and so as soon as we as soon as winston his son said that he was pretty sure that his dad was gone i walked to the desk and asked them to have somebody come and declare him and after they did I went home with my sister and her husband, and that was, like I said, on a Wednesday, and I didn't, I think we went back Thursday and Friday and packed, because the moving van was already scheduled for Friday. That's so much change for you. Yes, it was, it was crazy. So, we went and packed, and then I stayed, the, the funeral was on Monday, so my, my daughter and, and, her, and two of her PhD friends unloaded the moving van, not physically, but they put everything where it was supposed to be and got my kitchen set up, which was hilarious because for some reason they let the tallest girl set up the kitchen. So I had to rearrange all of it because I couldn't reach anything. But they, they got sheets on my bed and all the kitchen supplies put away. And so I was able to just come here and it took me about a year to get everything. Well, it took me a year to get everything unpacked in a way. And then it took me two years. There was a closet that had all the, in my guest room, had all the, uh, like death stuff and all the papers, and it took me another year to get that done. Wow. So. so, from what I understand, sometimes when someone dies, you process it really quickly, and sometimes it can take a long time. No, it did not. I did not. I thought I was fine, and for two years, I seemed to be quite fine. And then I had um, an experience where... Uh, someone took advantage of me financially and it just threw me for a loop because I, I, nothing like that had ever happened to me before. And so I went into a depression and I knew I was in trouble. I, I went immediately to, we had, we had, when I, that's what I was going to tell you, I was a mess when Wink died. I was 70 pounds heavier than I am now. And I mean, I was, I was a mess. And that happens as a caretaker. You just don't, and I probably ate, you know, a half a gallon of ice cream every night of my life for two years because that was all I had. That was the only joy I had in my life. I mean, it was pretty soul-sucking. I'm not going to lie to you. That's tough. So, um, anyway, I got in really bad shape, and um, I'd always been heavy. I'm as thin right now as I've been in years. But... When I, when I moved here, I started, the only way I could handle my grief was to walk, Shane. And we walked 3 o'clock in the morning, and everybody was like, aren't you afraid? And I'm like, no, I'm not. Not with Shane. And not to mention, this is nowhere like Memphis, where I'm from, so I, I'm not afraid here. Um, so this event happened, and I got, I had to go to the doctor, and we had started weaning me off some of my drugs, and I wanted to get off my antidepressant that I'd been on since I was in my 20s, and I came to the realization I will always be on antidepressants. We have a profound chemical problem in my family. Almost every person I know in my family is on antidepressants and would never get off of them because they would probably end up committing suicide. So, so I had gotten off my antidepressants and I got really bad. So I, I was smart enough to get to the doctor. I knew I was in trouble. And so I started seeing a therapist and, you know, she worked me through the, 
my feelings being hurt over the financial thing. And she said, I, I think this is just a part of what's wrong. And she, anyway, she told me I was in the middle of what's called delayed grief, that I didn't really process Wink's death when it happened because I was moving and I, you know, all that stuff was going on and I didn't have time to be, to, to grieve. I just had to get things done. And then when I did finally realize that I was, you know, going to have to deal with this and have to accept the fact that he was gone, I was paralyzed. I mean, I just sat on the couch and, I mean, I, I sat on that couch for at least a year, you know, and, and I did walk chain and I did, you know, those kind of things. But so far as I wasn't social, I didn't, you know, I, I, I know almost everybody in the neighborhood because I walk Shane so much. People see me all the time. And I'm going to talk to anybody that I see because that's just who I am. But to answer your question, no, I did not process it when he died. It, it took me a couple of years to get into it and realize that it's never going to go away. And I can cry as easily today as I did the day he died. And that's, you just have to start realizing that that's now a part of your life and adapt to it and realize that, you know, there may be another relationship in my future, but it will, will not change my relationship with him. And um, that's just part of who I am. I'm a widow, and that's just who it is. So. Wow. So in relationships, you know, there's the love that we receive, and sometimes it can be hard to open your heart to that, and that, that can be a journey. But then there's also the love that we have to give. And, and you said with Wink, you know, he just, he told you every day that you were beautiful mm -hmm. and he watched out for you and he took care of you. And, mm -hmm. and it sounds like he, he was just, he was there for you. Oh yes. And what for was, my daughter and, you know. What was the love that you had to give or you had to learn how to give in your marriage? I think Wink had never, I, th I think what Wink found attractive in me was that I adored him. and. I showed him the same adoration that he showed me, and also I taught him how to have fun. My family, crazy though we are, are a lot of fun. And like my sister with this ranch, we we did roundups on horseback, and you know we had these weekends. So he just had never had fun, and and also I taught him how to travel, and and how to see the world, and that and did that kind of thing. And but I think what I did for him. So I just made him happy. So with other family members, you said Wink was very close with your daughter. Were you close with his kids? No, not at all. His son and I are quite close. He lived with us for a little while when Wink and I first got married. And we, we developed a relationship. What was your relationship with his ex-wife? Very civil. We would, if, the last, say, year and a half that that Wink was alive, we had breakfast every morning at the same restaurant, every Sunday morning at the same restaurant, Stone Soup. And any child, anybody that we knew that was in town knew that they could meet us at the restaurant and we would all have breakfast together. So sometimes she would show up, she would come. And uh, we invited her to Wait, the- you and Wink would have breakfast at the same time? Oh, I thought you meant you and the ex-wife no, would have breakfast. No, and we, I was like, oh, all right. No, we, we would, and all the children, any of the children that would come, if my kids were in town, they would come, mm. any of Wink's kids. Matter of fact, his, his two daughters would come almost every time. And there was just, we had a big table every Sunday. There was usually anywhere from never fewer than five and usually sometimes 10, 12 people every Sunday morning. And so sometimes one of the kids would call me and say, mom's gonna be in town 
do you mind if she comes? Like, no, not at all. Please bring her. And so she would have breakfast with us. When Wink turned 74, I'm pretty sure she came, to, uh, or 70, I think I had a, no, 70th birthday party. We had a big, I'm pretty sure she came to that. Saw her at all the weddings. She and I were fine. Did she it, didn't care. Like, did it start that way? Like, cause Yeah, we were friends. I used to play bingo with them. She had no, I don't know when she knew it was me that he was marrying, but I do know that the kids were very, one of her friends told me, you owe a debt because the kids were complaining about their dad. And she said, your daddy needs somebody to love too. Your daddy needs to be loved. And so I think she realized she could not, had never been able to do that for him. And now to be fair, he, I think, started screwing around on her within a week of their marriage. I mean, he was a different person before he and I got together. He was never a bad person. He was just a trouser snake. He was just a, he loved women, totally loved women. And then our relationship and then our marriage, he was a different person. Do you think part of that was because you, you said, like, you know, I can't do this anymore? Like, I, oh, I know. Pretty much it sounds like you're saying, like, I need you to, to make a choice. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And he did. And then he found, found a piece in that. He found a piece in, in my family. Crazy as we are, we're a lot of fun. And uh, my mother's a good cook, or was. She's gone now. He had never understood fun. He had never wanted to take a vacation. He would, like, every two or three years would succumb and take his kids to Disney World for 10 days. I mean, it was just like he hated it. He didn't ever want to be at home. He worked seven days a week because he did not want to be at home. He was miserable. Wow. And so, you know, we had this great life after we got together. That's what it sounds like. We did. We loved each other very much, and he was very special. He made a huge difference in my life, and I owe him a great deal. But he got something out of it, too. So Sounds like it. Sometimes people say or feel or experience after someone passes, they they experience them in a certain way or see them in a dream or I did not see feel them around. Have you felt him around? Just recently. I mean, just recently. It's been nearly five years. September 9th will be five years. No, September 7th, I'm sorry. Will be five years. But I had not dreamt of him, I mean, or anything like that. And I still have a his house coat that I never washed, that I can go and smell of if I'm just having a moment. But I had not really had this thing. And then recently, okay, you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I'll just tell you. Recently, I have smelt him in this house. And at first I thought it was my brother-in-law, but then, because old men have a smell. But no, it wasn't. And like the other night, I walked into the bedroom and I just got this huge whiff of it. And so I talked to him for a few minutes and thought, well, he's not ever going to answer, so I might as well go to bed. But it's just, I felt his presence recently. And it's, it's been a, it's been a um, smell. Do you have any idea why? Other than maybe I'm just able to do it now. Maybe I was too close to it. Maybe I was too hurt. I don't. I don't know. So you've experienced something that I haven't really talked to many people about. You had an affair with someone who was married for a long time, and as you said, mm -hmm. it worked out for you in a way that it doesn't work out very often. 
But what would you tell someone who's in that situation? Who's either thinking about having an affair, or who's having one, or someone who's outside of it and seeing someone? Just there's a lot of. I would say that if you're, first of all, sex is not the reason people have affairs. You don't have sex. I mean, it's sex is not it. You have affairs because you're missing a connection. And so if you're thinking about having an affair, you need to either figure out what's going on with your marriage or you need to get out of your marriage. Because once you cross that line, I mean, yes, there are people that get back together after affairs and they're able to forgive each other, but it's a really hard thing to overcome. And so if, if somebody's either thinking about starting an affair and if you're like me and didn't have any concept of what marriage meant and you're asking someone to break their marriage vows, you need to think long and hard about it because that was my responsibility. Now, I found out later that apparently it didn't bother him a whole lot and hadn't ever, but I made a, I made a move that I should not have made, and I've learned a lot from that. I'm not saying I wish I hadn't because I, I don't. My life would not be anywhere near like it is right now if I hadn't. But that's mainly what I would say. Just you need to, to think about it. And, and sex is never the reason people have affairs. Okay. And loving someone who has a long-term illness, who has Alzheimer's, what would you say about that? Like, what did you learn from that? Um, I learned that if you marry somebody that's that much older than you, you need to realize that you're going to be a caretaker unless you have some sort of event that takes you first. Chances are, though, anyway, as a woman, you're going to outlive your husband, and then you add 15 years on top of it, and you're pretty much looking at either being a caretaker or a widow at some point. I mean, so be absolutely sure that you have it in you because it's truly the hardest thing I've ever done to watch somebody that you love more than life itself die inch by inch by inch, and you lose them a hundred times a day sometimes. You, they, they forget you, or they dismiss you, or they're angry at you, or they're just not themselves. So at some point in time, I can remember sitting on a bench we had in our master closet, and I was helping him get dressed. And I remember thinking, we're like two strangers now almost because I mean I, he sees me as a caretaker and he loves me and he still tells me I'm beautiful but there's a whole part of our life that's gone and so you're suddenly in an intimate relationship with a stranger because that's not the person you married and even and he doesn't necessarily know who you are all the time so I think Alzheimer's is going to be a big issue in our world now it's just becoming very prevalent and I you know, that for better or for worse is pretty serious. And if you're looking at someone that much older than you, think real hard about it. Make sure, you, make sure you're up for it. And, and I don't know, I honestly don't know what I would have thought about myself. I, I, I think that I loved him enough that I was going to do it anyway and learn or figure out how to work it. You seem like... A very loving and also a very tough person. So, <laughs> I hope so. I hope you're right. I think you've proven it from my perspective, anyways. What 
What do you remember most about Wink? Mm. Well, his smell, obviously, is one thing. <laughs> his love of women. And, and I don't necessarily mean in a icky way. I just mean he just loved women. And he, and he was such a gentleman. I mean, he, I see people nowadays and I think, oh, geez, Wink would just have a stroke. Because there's nothing that keeps a man, a gentleman, I'll say, from doing something nice for a lady that makes her less of a person. You know, these, like my daughter, I mean, she has a PhD in gender bias, and she's like, I have no problem with a man opening a door for me. That doesn't make me any less smart than him. I'm probably smarter than him anyway, you know. So that doesn't, it's, it doesn't belittle me. It's just, it's part of the fine part of, it, it's a, it's a, it's icing. And he, he did things like, in restaurants, he had the, so if we were sitting in a restaurant, it's always obvious when a waitress gets, you can always tell when a waitress picks up a ticket and she's been stiffed or whatever. He would tip them. He would, he would leave a tip for that waitress and our waitress. Hmm. He was just a very kind, you know, he thought about ways that he could, and I don't know whether he was always that way or if he felt, if he was making amends for what he felt like he'd been a bad person. I don't know, but around me, he was just always thinking about how to be kind and how to do things for others. And I said this about Wink when he died, and I, I believe it to be true, that if he'd have met you, he would have liked you. I only know of like two people on the face of the earth that he did not like. Really, only one. Wow. What do you think he would say about you? If he was sitting next to you right now and I asked him. He would tell you that I was beautiful and that he loved me. That's, that's all of it right there? Yeah, it is. So. Last question. I'm so grateful for your time and all you've shared. Oh, I, I don't know of anything I'd rather talk about than my husband. So. What is one thing you really, really love about yourself? Mm. I think now what I really, really love about myself is that my main concern is to be kind. That's it. I, I don't know of any other way to make an effort, you know, to make and if, um, I don't know how to help anybody other than just to be kind. I mean, I give donations and I do all that kind of stuff, but sometimes kindness cuts a long way. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Feel free to leave a comment about this conversation, maybe what you're taking with you from it. Make sure to check out the other conversations if you haven't already too. You can also send me a message if you have a story to share. I'd love to hear it. I'll be working on a new series soon and you could be a part of it. Sending good your way. Until next time, take good care.